Greetings, everyone. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And before I get started today, I want to invite you personally and explain a little bit about this um, event we are having together on February 2nd. Happens to be Groundhog's Day and Super Bowl Sunday. Over the last several years, we have had a really wonderful celebratory uh, evening, meal, and sort of an annual celebration and a sense of um, sharing where God might be taking us in the next year. And there have really been two primary groups of people that we have missed in the middle of these Sunday evening celebrations. One of them are families that have in them our youngest saints. Those who, once they've been here in the morning, are not prone to coming back in the evening, especially on a school night, especially in light of bedtimes and tub routines and all those kinds of things. But the other group that has not been prone to coming back are our oldest saints, those who are less prone to wanting to drive in the dark. And because we have some really important things to share, we wanted to make sure that everybody had the greatest possibility of being here and listening in and participating and celebrating what we understand God is inviting us to do and to be about together as a whole, large, single, unified church. So we want you to come, and so we put it in the morning. There's going to be breakfast, we'll worship, we'll hear about some of these things, and we've put it on Super Bowl Sunday, especially because we've noticed over the last several years that Super Bowl Sunday happens to be a Sunday when our most dedicated skiers, even those who have cabins up in the mountains, are more prone than not to stay down here in the lowlands and worship and then go and uh, participate or host in some Super Bowl party. So friends, that's why we've moved it. We've moved it because we want to include every single one of you. So um, in case you've missed this invitation, February 2nd, 9 a.m. breakfast, 10 a.m. worship and vision. You want to come. I want you to be here to listen in on all of this. This year and the next couple of years upcoming certainly are going to be years that are going to be filled with all sorts of adventure and vitality and unexpected challenges. And it's going to feel like there's like momentum and change and goodness and in the middle of all that we also wanted to say hey first let's make sure we get the order of operations right because as we've said before it's possible for us to do all these things successfully and totally leave jesus off the map and we've not wanted to do that we don't want to do that i never will want to do that and so what we've wanted to say, before all of this gets rolled out and we preach our way through a vision and all those kinds of things, we wanted to say, before any of that, let's, let's just be really clear. First, let's make sure we really understand the ministry and the call of Jesus Christ. We have things we want to do. You probably have things you want to do in your personal life. Those are all good things. Let's well, first, Jesus. And we've done that this time by essentially just studying the first chapter of Mark, saying that inside that first chapter of the Gospel of Mark is a really sort of wonderful summary and encapsulation of the entire ministry of Jesus. We started uh, three weeks ago, maybe depending on how you count, four weeks ago, as we looked at this ministry of Jesus, this, that Jesus proclaims the coming kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near, he says. Repent and believe the good news. 
The week after that, we looked at this very sort of personal, relational call for people to know and follow Him. Jesus comes up to people in the middle of their lives, the middle of their good lives, and says, you, follow me. And as He starts to acquire some of these followers, just last week, we, we looked at Jesus driving out that which is evil, that which clings and we carry with us even into these spaces like that man who was possessed last week. This week, as we continue to look at Jesus before we do anything else this year, Jesus prays and he heals. So why don't we pray? And then we'll drive into the text. Lord, thank you for gathering us all here together this morning, even those who are visiting from out of town. It is so good when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Thank you. And Lord, we come, all of us, carrying our own stories and this unified story of the goodness of Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, these things that we're aware of that are burdens to us, that we carry, that may be heavy, Lord, we pray that by your grace you would receive them and you would lighten them. When we worship you, Lord, we also know we receive something of the promise of your mercy and goodness and grace. So as we come to this moment of hearing a message, may our worship continue, but may we also receive a gift from your Spirit. The words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. For you are our Lord, Rock, and Redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 1, verse 35 through 45. If you brought a Bible, it's always good to have it and hold it and carry it and look at it. I bring mine, as I've been saying. You should too. A little, uh, just before this passage, um, people are coming to Jesus in droves by the hundreds and by the dozens that he will sort of cast out whatever is in them that's evil and also that he would heal them. It's been happening all night. And then we get to this in verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! You ready to go? Okay. There we go. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. And a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. 
Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the good news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So friends, what we see here, even in the beginning opening chapter of the Gospel of Mark, is that the ministry of Jesus is growing. And it's growing in a way that, surprisingly to us, might be in some ways unwelcome. People are coming to him in droves to cast out demons and to uh, be healed. And Jesus certainly does that. He wants to do that. But he's interested in ministry on a much larger scale. He's come to widen the campaign and loosen the grip of death and Satan in the world. And this, all this healing and driving out has sort of gotten in the way. He wants to preach the good news and have people come face to face with the goodness of God. Already, very early on, what we see is the enthusiasm, the expectations that are being placed on Jesus are truly exhausting and distracting from what is primary. Does that happen to you? Are the expectations, the things that are placed upon you, do they, do they actually distract you and exhaust you from what is primary? That's at the heart of what we're seeking to speak about over this series. And what does Jesus do? In the midst of all sorts of people having an agenda for Jesus, an idea of what should happen for Jesus, what does he do? He escapes to pray. Early in the morning, he gets up, finds some time away, and he prays. This is what Jesus does, and maybe we should all be sort of wondering about as we seek to follow Jesus. Jesus makes first firsts first. Actually do first firsts first. And this is what I mean by that. There's always going to be things in your life that claim priority. There are always going to be things that I really feel like I need to do all these things before I have time to really sit down and do these other first things. People will always have an agenda for you, and you might let them. Do you let other people's agenda drive what happens the very first thing in the morning? They might not even sort of be overt agenda. Let me give you an example. This morning, I woke up at sort of a ridiculously early hour. I just, my eyes popped open. It was awful. I'm, that happens to you, I know, sometimes. Maybe it's age-related. I hope not. The first thing that I did is I grabbed my phone and I looked at a couple headlines. Then I swung over and I put my feet on the floor and um, as I try to do, I reminded myself that today is a day for worship. All that I do today is a day for worship. Then I, um, you know, put on some warmer clothes, started the fire, started the coffee, um, did a couple other things, and I went to my chair in my office. 
these are probably good things. Maybe even necessary. Coffee is a necessary thing in my world. I've been fascinated for, um, for many years now, four or five years at least, with uh, the study and the understanding of habits. I actually think uh, habits are more important in our discipleship to think about than goals. What are the things we can do in successive order that actually allow God's character to sort of invade and stay in our hearts and souls? Not to simply just have a a goal to become more godly by 2021, but what are the habits that need to be started to do that? So I've read books like this, and these are, these are good books. I even recommend them uh, in a certain way. They help to sort of provide some structure and understanding of, of how behavior is, is driven. They're good. But in the middle of all that, what I want to say is, Jesus paves the way. Jesus says, of all the first things, put the first first first. We always have a list of the things of how we want to start our day, and the first one Jesus shows us is prayer. We all have a list. But I wonder, is craving time with God the Father on it? I mean, why, why does Jesus need to pray? I mean, he casts out demons. He heals the sick. He walks on water. He turns a little bit of wine into a, a little bit of water into a lot of wine. Give him a loaf of bread and he feeds 5,000. Why does Jesus need to pray? Apparently, the same reason that I do. Sometimes expectations can skewer my sense of mission. And what I need in the midst of the very beginning of my day is just to have God reclaim the center and the direction of my life. To find some time that I can be intimately close and connected to the one who made me and loves me best. To seek direction from the Lord, to rest in His arms first and say, whatever else happens in this day, I know you are with me. So Jesus shows us the way to put first firsts first, to seek intimacy and direction and rest, even before that other first thing. All next year, once I come back from my sabbatical, will be a year of prayer. We're going to talk about this a lot in the upcoming school year. And I'm really excited and a little nervous for what it might mean. So Jesus, he puts this first first, the very first of his day. And people find like, hey, Lord, these people, they're clamoring for you. They want you. It's like, okay. But I'm going to go to these other places because the primary thing in this of all the other attention people want is that I would preach and share that the kingdom of God is near. And he, he does that. And then we, we read right after that this story. He has this interaction with a leper. 
And probably, if you've read the gospel sometime in your life, maybe even in this very room, some other preacher, maybe even me, has shared some story of Jesus' interaction with someone who's unclean. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know, Jesus, lepers, got it. No longer shocked or surprised or delighted. What if we just took uh, another look at this? In a certain way, we have sort of this sense of like, wow, they're so simple and, and we're so sophisticated. We would never do that with someone who has an infectious disease. We would never sort of push them to the outsides of the margins. We would never deny them social contact and, until we consider an outbreak of the mumps or the chickenpox or Ebola. And we realize there are real risks when infection diseases, infectious diseases are in our culture. We actually have a very similar impulse. Now, we have a methodology, and we have the, you know, several thousand years of science and medicine since this Levitical law was written. But what's happening to this leper in this moment to keep those who have leprosy from destroying an entire community, they He's living under the weight of this law from Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45 and 46. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. As long as they have this disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Having leprosy robbed someone of their vocation, of their fellowship, of their family, of their community, maybe even of their name. To be a person with leprosy was um, ritually and ceremonially unclean. You were impure, not just for the community, but for God. To touch such a person, to even come potentially too near such a person, would also make you unclean. And we read this, and we're sort of like, I don't know, sometimes we're shocked by like, how simple that feels to us, and sometimes we're bothered by it, sometimes we're indignant by it. But I tell you what, I want to take a little sidebar, because I actually think this touches on something that I think um, is important to a lot of us. A question that a lot of us carry, but have maybe never really answered. So I'm going to take this sort of a, this sidebar and venture into Old Testament law. Just for a minute, I want to talk a little bit about the Old Testament law. It might be, as it has been with me from time to time, I'll read some, I'll be reading a New York Times or the local newspaper that, you know, shall remain unnamed. And there'll be a story about um, a church or some aspect of, of Christian living or some activity that a church or a pastor has, has taken. And if you read the comments, 
you'll almost always read someone say, maybe even have had been in an interaction where someone has said, all that superstition, Christians are so hypocritical. They pick and choose on their own to follow this law, but not this law. They read the Old Testament selectively. So they read this, but they, and they, they don't do this anymore, but um, they, still, they still require this. Does that sound familiar to you? Maybe someone has quoted a passage like this to you from, um, from, the, purity, from the law of the Old Testament. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. I think a lot of you are breaking that law today. In fact, I, this sweater, is breaking that law today. And if I'm breaking that law, how can I decide that other laws are laws that we should keep? Here's another example that often sort of comes up as a favorite whipping boy in the newspaper and maybe in conversation. Of, of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any that have fins and scales... But all creatures in the seas or the streams that do not have fins and scales, whether they're among all the swarming things or among all the other living creatures in the water, you are to regard those things as unclean. As someone who does not like shrimp, crab, crawdads, I, I love this law. But I know many of us do not. We don't adhere to it. We don't feel like we have to do that. Why, why is that? Isn't it hypocritical to say, well, those things are fine, but these, these other things that we read about human sexuality or marriage or the way we're supposed to be inter interactive with a community and not stealing or everything else, surely, like, it seems so arbitrary. Scholars of the Old Testament sometimes will say that there really are three laws kind of wrapped and interwoven together in the Old Testament. Some of those are laws for ancient Israel about how, just how to operate as a nation. Those laws essentially went by the wayside once um, they were um, put into exile and absorbed by Babylon. So some of the things we see in the Old Testament are, are laws about sort of nation-keeping, community-keeping. There are also a, a number of laws that are purity and ceremonial laws for worship. You might know that in God's holiness, He, he asked for and sought payment for sin, set up in this uh, sacrificial system. And even those who needed to sacrifice needed needed to be sort of ritually and ceremonially clean to do it. And so to be clean and to participate, you needed to not wear clothes from, you know, two kinds of threads. To not eat shellfish and a whole host of other things. But here's the thing that I want you to know about these kinds of laws. Jesus Christ is now our purity. He is now the one who adheres these laws for us. We are made pure and clean and spotless because of Him. These laws no longer hold sway over us, not because purity is unimportant, but because Jesus is our purity. He is the one who's done this. 
You see it celebrated here in Hebrews 19, or pardon me, Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Friends, I'm wearing this sweater because Jesus is my purity. When you go somewhere and and have some shellfish, you can be set free because Jesus is your purity. Some of these laws are, are set up about how we're supposed to interact with one another in the midst of our purity. Those are called the morality laws, and they remain. In fact, what we see in the Gospels is the, the morality laws. We, we see that Jesus takes them, like, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he intensifies them. He says, these were true in the previous law, but now I say to you, and he intensifies them, and he strengthens them. He says, it's not that these moral laws have gone away, but because I am your purity... Now this call to live a life where you love God and love people is intensified. It's strengthened. So the purity laws can go away, and the moral laws were called to live with great joy and clarity. And this moment right here is one of those moments where we see that Jesus essentially is saying, I have come to simply be the purity, to take away the unrighteousness that might come with having a skin disease. This man comes to Jesus, and he breaks all sorts of taboos. It doesn't sound like he covered his mouth. He came within too close of a distance. He talks to someone else and says, if you're willing. And Jesus, it says, is indignant. Now, your translation might say something different. As we continue to acquire and find and discover more fragments of the ancient scriptures, it's clear that the word indignant is better than has compassion. There's just more um, examples of it in older texts. Why was Jesus indignant? I wish it would tell us. Is he indignant because um, this man has broken the taboo? Is he indignant because of this, this leper's deep pain and the way he's been treated? Perhaps Jesus knows that if he addresses this man and does the thing that he asks, his primary call to preach the coming kingdom is always going to be pushed to the margin. We don't know. But Jesus is indignant. But he still allows the man to come forward. Why? He's broken a taboo. He's unclean. Jesus is indignant. Why? Because Jesus has come to reverse the curse. That's why. Jesus has come to reverse the curse. The whole story of God coming in the flesh, the incarnation, is Jesus coming into uncleanness. He's come to reverse the dynamic of our alienation that we have from God and from one another. 
He's come to say, I see all your activity, like he did to those disciples two weeks ago. It's good, but it's also not enough. A good life is not enough. I've come to reverse the curse. I've come to draw it out of you. Jesus reverses the flow. It makes great sense to us when someone is unclean or they have something catchable that they're going to give it to us, right? If you have something unclean, you're, you're going to get it. If I've been like, you know, working in the car, which never happens, and my hands are all dirty and gross, and I hug my son and I pat him on the back, I have transferred some of my dirt to him. If I um, cough into my hand, and then I shake your hand, and you wipe your nose, we've had a delightful interaction. <laughs> right? We know, actually, that uncleanness actually spreads. But not with Jesus. It's actually the reverse in a way that's completely shocking to us and, and counter to anything else we know about uncleanness. Interaction with Jesus brings purity. Any sort of interaction with Jesus where we've come desperately seeking cleanness and salvation from Him, it comes. This, this Jesus is not polluted, but the man is cleansed. It's the reverse. And that's because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to reverse the curse. And Israel had been waiting for hundreds upon hundreds of years for this. And when it came, because they'd been longing so long, they almost, sometimes they almost missed it. But what Jesus is doing in this moment for this man, and as an example now for all of us, is, is what um, is, is read about in Isaiah chapter 53. It's this beautiful section on the suffering servant. And to dig just one part of it, here's the expectation, the desire. After the, suffer, after the servant has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the hope of the Messiah. This is what we desperately need. And this is what the leper experienced. Jesus, in a cosmic exchange, gave him his purity. And what he does here prefigures the, the whole gospel story. Right here in, in the first chapter of Mark, what we discover is when this exchange happens, the man catches healing. But Jesus now finds himself on the outside. The man finds himself willing, like, able to go back into community. He's included. He has life. It's life that's full and beautiful and relational again celebratory, he goes out and proclaims the goodness of Jesus. But Jesus himself finds himself more and more pushed to the margins. He can't enter a town. 
Eventually, this theme that we see here explodes to Jesus being alienated on the cross, that we might all be included. Jesus has come to reverse the curse. He takes our alienation, our impurity, the consequence of death, and he nails himself to a cross that we might have life. That's the pattern of Jesus. For all who wants to approach him and catch healing, to be infected with healing. In fact, this is, this is worth thinking about just for a moment. In, in Boulder, isn't it true that we are often a little nervous about appearing too religious? Is this you? People find out you attend a church, and you're like, but I'm not like that. Is that you? Do you hide your faith in Christ? We're a little skittish about being bold about our faith, are we not? We're a little nervous about what might happen to us socially if we actually let people know not only that we go to church, but we actually believe what's said there. Maybe even you've had the interaction like I talked about before. It's like, oh, that's, you, you adhere to a crazy book. No, I actually just need to read it. But it's worth thinking just for a moment. It's worth thinking about turning to this man. This man who had this leprosy. What does he do? What does he do to receive healing? To be made pure? He's like, well, I, I mean, I've heard he's maybe kind of good. But I, I don't want to let him know my problems. And Fred said, instead, friends, what we see is, is this man breaks every taboo that might have existed in his culture. He comes right up to Jesus. And he says, I need you. If I'm going to get out of the state that I am in, I need you, Jesus. If, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And here's the thing that strikes me about this that I think works for all of us. We really like this man. We need to seek infection. When was the last time someone told you to seek it out? But that's the goodness of the example of the leper in this moment. What he said is, is, what I have is not good. I actually need to be infected with what Jesus has. I need to receive the goodness and the giftedness of purity and salvation and cleanness. And Jesus can reverse the curse. In his boldness, he breaks all sorts of rules. And if we don't break those rules, if we don't seek to be infected by Christ, if, if we hold ourselves at arm's length, do we seek and then receive that infection? What we see here, friends, 
is that Jesus is ready to reverse the flow. Jesus is eager to give you new life. Jesus is hands out ready to become your righteousness. And it's right here in the first chapter of Mark. Can you imagine yourself embarrassing and debasing yourself in the way that this man did? Can I submit to you that maybe we need to be a little less worried about our appearances? Let us seek the only infection that matters, the hope and the salvation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this extraordinary passage that so often I skim to get to other meat. But today, Lord, I've been reminded of the gospel that you have come to be our purity, to declare us righteous, not because of us, but because of your work to reverse the curse. Lord, I confess that too often, even as a pastor, I'm, I'm cautious about declaring the goodness and I'm coming before you with joy and with clarity, even in front of the rest of my community. Lord, would you wipe that away from me and from us? That we would seek to be foolish, that we might have life. As it says in 1 Corinthians, Lord, will we seek to understand what it means that the, the world's wisdom is foolish and your foolishness is deep wisdom. Let us live our lives, God, but first let us seek you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Friends, let us stand, shall we, and sing our closing hymn.